to the RTI Time Machine. Today's time traveler is John Van Trieste. And the destination Kaohsiung, the 1860s. On any given evening, rows of tour buses and columns of scooter riding locals come out to the northern entrance of Kaohsiung Harbor. Not far from here is Shizuan Beach, a fantastic place to watch the sunset out over the Taiwan Strait. Here, where Long Life Mountain meets the coast, there are many fine views to choose from. One vantage point is commanded by a handsome brick building that has watched over this harbor for over a century. It was here well before the huge container ships that now anchor offshore, and before the nighttime lights that reflect off this port city's harbor today. This building is the former British consulate at Takao, Takao being an old name for Kaohsiung. It was designed by a British architect, servant of an empire on which it was said the sun never set. Though Taiwan never came under British rule, the empire's influence could still be felt on this coast. And though never rulers, the consuls and subjects of Queen Victoria left their mark here in Kaohsiung in other ways. Here to tell us more about the old consulate is Lin Shangying. She is deputy head of Kaohsiung City's Cultural Affairs Bureau, the custodians of this historic site. Over the next two weeks, she'll be introducing the lives of the people who lived and worked here and the consulate's place in Taiwan's history. Ms. Lin says that Kaohsiung began to attract Western interest in the mid-19th century. Like most ports in Imperial China, it had been closed to foreign trade. But the opium wars that took place around this time saw Western powers force them open. In the 1860s, Kaohsiung was added to the growing list of places where trade was allowed. Britain, one of the main powers behind the opening of these ports, moved to build consular outposts in these places. The vice consul appointed to do this on Taiwan was Robert Swinho. He'd already had some experience on Taiwan, and in 1861, he set up the first vice consulate in what's now Tainan. But he didn't stay there. Ms. Lin says that in part, this had to do with a lack of natural protection for ships and difficulties with loading and unloading cargo. Finally, in 1864, after some moving around, it was decided to move the whole operation down to Kaohsiung, where a new customs house had opened. Swinho soon got a promotion, becoming a full-fledged consul, and so this outpost became a full-fledged consulate, too. But it wasn't anything impressive at first. Getting settled in took a long time. In the beginning, the consulate had to be based on a boat floating in the harbor. Later, a building was rented, but the permanent home we see today was still many years off. It was only in 1879 that a team of Chinese workers using Chinese materials completed the consul's British design. The new consulate building sat next to the customs house down by the harbor, while up in the hills out back was a consular residence. The arched verandas that wrap around both buildings must have been a cool retreat during the blistering tropical summers here. 
But why go through all this trouble, building and staffing a consulate? Why not just leave the merchants to get on with their trading? What was the consulate's purpose, and what were the consul's responsibilities? Ms. Lin says promoting trade was the consulate's primary reason for existing. The consul had trade reports and commercial surveys to write, as well as a role in resolving business disputes. But in addition to trade, she lists two other important roles the consulates played. The first was protecting British subjects in the area, as well as their property. Then, she says, there was a mission to improve ties with Imperial China. The job could involve a lot of paperwork. In January alone, she says, the consul had to draw up records of where British residents in the area were living, as well as of things like births, deaths and marriages in the foreign community. She says reports on trade figures for the previous year were also due around this time. The job also came with another big responsibility. Ms. Lin says that for foreign residents here, the consul was the law. The Western powers that had forced ports like Kaohsiung open also insisted that their nationals be granted extraterritoriality, meaning that if trouble arose, the imperial Chinese legal system couldn't touch them. In cases involving foreign nationals, foreign consuls were to have jurisdiction. As Ms. Lin describes it, they were judge and prosecutor in criminal cases, hearing plaintiffs, defendants, and witnesses, looking at evidence, and administering punishments. She says the consuls here had constables at their disposal, and that the consulate came equipped with a jail cell. Kaohsiung never achieved the fame of some of the other ports forced open during this period, but history was made here nonetheless. Today, the former consulate brings this history to life through a series of snapshots from the past, reenacted with wax figures on the consulate grounds. Through these scenes, visitors get to know some of the consuls who lived here, along with a few other 19th-century people whose fates brought them to Kaohsiung over the years. Ms. Lin is going to guide us through these scenes to give us a look at who these people were and what they did. The first scene shows an imagining of what the street view in front of the consulate may have looked like during the 19th century. There are locals and foreigners, and a few people with goods to sell. What sorts of things were people buying and selling here? Ms. Lin says that southern Taiwan had become known for its sugar during these years and that sugar exported from Kaohsiung could fetch a good price on the market. The major import of the time was opium. Ports like this one had, after all, been opened after two opium wars. But by this point, British textiles, now made on an industrial scale, were also sought after here. The trade was carried out by large Western firms, Tate and Dent being just two of the more famous examples. But this trade wasn't carried out directly with local suppliers. 
Ms. Lin says a system of compradors, or middlemen, was set up, in part to make sure that this foreign trade went smoothly. These middlemen were imperial Chinese subjects who understood the local language and who had an intimate knowledge of the local business environment and its demands. At the same time, these people also spoke European languages and had come to master Western business practices as well. In this scene, what looks to be a European merchant is talking with his comprador, a well-dressed man in a fine blue jacket that sticks out against the regular cloth shirts of the vendors behind him. Ms. Lin says that some merchant-comprador pairs did well together. Other partners, meanwhile, had a relationship that wasn't always so cordial, with disputes of various kinds breaking out. But like it or not, this was just something that both sides would have to put up with in order to profit from the rich sugarcane fields of the southern interior. We'll return to this street scene next week to meet the figure who stands in the center of it all, a European woman in a green Victorian dress. Ms. Lin will also take us through the rest of the series to meet some of the other inhabitants of this world, a man who brought Taiwan's wildlife to London circles, a pair whose failed negotiations saw gunboats sent to these shores, and a missionary with an unusual way of winning over converts. I'm John Van Trieste, and I hope you'll join me again next week for another journey through time.